the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Welcome everyone again to another episode of the Curiosity Habit and today is a great pleasure for me to welcome uh, our first, I, I was telling Francisco, he's my first uh, guest from the Global South as a medical education researcher. Even though I was born in Colombia, I don't work in Colombia, but Francisco does, so I'm very excited to hear about his stories and experiences. So I have Dr. Francisco Olmos Vega, who is an assistant professor in the Department of Anesthesia at Haveriana University. He's also the director of the MHP program, one of the two only in Colombia, that is joined between Haveriana University and Rosario University. Welcome to the podcast, Francisco. Thank you very much for this invitation, Sarah. I'm, I'm very excited to, to be here today with you. Yeah, me too, thank you. So let's start the way I usually start because I always wanna go back in time in order to understand why people do what, whatever they do in research. So could you give me a little bit of an understanding of uh, your family growing up, who were you surrounded by, what, what did you used to do growing up, what got your attention and curiosities? Okay, so, um, well, uh, Colombia is a very uh, diverse country. Uh, people might not know that, but uh, we could be very different depending on the region you were born in. So I'm a mixture because my father is from uh, Monteria, which is a capital city near the North Coast, uh, the Caribbean coast. And my mother is from uh, Bogota, from the capital city, which is uh, where I live uh, right now. Um, so I was born here in Bogota because I was born when they were finishing the, their, their uh, degree studies. Um, and then when they finished their, their training, uh, we moved back to Monteria. Mm -hmm. And we, I, I, I grew up there. I moved back to Bogota when I started um, my medicine training back in 2000. And now I've been living more time in Bogota than, than, than in Monteria. Mm -hmm. um, well, uh, about my childhood, I, I was a very lucky uh, uh, children because Monteria is a small city. Mm -hmm. It was a safe city back in the 80s. And in the 90s, and um, compared to the rest of, of the country, was which was immersed in uh, a conflict with the uh, uh, narcos and uh, uh, well, a lot of conflicts within Colombia. But Monteria was kind of an oasis uh, from that. So I grew up very freely. My father. It took me to my schools and took me back to my house every day. And uh, I had a lot of friends in my neighbor and I was free to go outside and to play outside. Mm, so it wasn't a nice uh, childhood. Mm, perhaps uh, what I remember most of my childhood was, uh, I, I don't know if you know, but I'm gay. 
I'm a proud member of the LGBT plus community. Um, but Colombia is a very conservative country, right? And Monteria was very, very conservative. Uh, so I spent most of my uh, early years trying to conceal my femininity and my queerness and my gay identity uh, to avoid bullying and to be accepted like in, in, like in the society as a whole. It was difficult in the 80s and in the 90s to come up out of closet. We had the AIDS uh, uh, crisis and it was very uh, stereotypical uh, way to see gay people in Colombia. Mm-hmm. And that's important and it's connected to my research because in that process of concealing your uh, gay identity, you hyper-masculinize yourself. It's like you have to be very rough, very uh, kind of uh, uh, menacing to all pe- to, to other people, kind of aggressive, mm-hmm. because that's the way you protect yourself from uh, bullying and from uh, marginalization, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I have like a, a resting beach face, and I can be very serious. And when I'm not comfortable in 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 a context, I can be very I can perceive as an aggressive person, kind of a rude person. And uh, that translated a little bit into my uh, experiences with uh, students. So when I uh, finished my anesthesia training, I was hired in um, uh, San Ignacio Hospital as an attending. So I had uh, teaching, clinical teaching with uh, pre-graduate and postgraduate students. Mm, and it wasn't until I started uh, my MHP that I understand the implications of the interaction between the student and the clinical supervisor in their learning, which was the field of study of my PhD uh, uh, thesis. Mm, so I realized how that menacing feel I had was working against the learning of my students. Um, so yeah, that 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 kind of connect me to research to mm-hmm. say, okay, what's the role of these kind of uh, uh, problems in clinical supervision and how this interaction influenced the learning at the workplace? Uh, specifically on, on postgraduate students, because I, I, I began to notice that some uh, residents fear me or doesn't feel at ease when they were with me. Um, and it was kind of an unconscious, involuntary thing to do. I mean, I, 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 I didn't mean to be <laughs> that threatening to them, right? Um, so I became interested in the topic of clinical supervision and how to be a better clinical supervisor to them. Um, And well, part of my efforts during this uh, type of uh, uh, age, uh, I mean, during my my growing up years, I was concealing myself, but right now I'm trying to open to the world. 
and to discover who I really am uh, without that shield, without that hyper-masculinity shield around me. Um, and that's hand-in-hand hand with uh, a, a, a new way to supervise my students, to make them feel welcome and to make them feel at ease when they are with me to be so they can be more um, receptive to mm -hmm. the opportunities I'm giving to them during the workplace. Um, and that's kind of my yeah. like the, the narrative of my life. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> what's happening overall in, yeah. in well it makes so much more sense to me now because I, one of my questions was going to say what got you into supervision but it's very personal and i really appreciate you sharing that and it's usually the case that is something in your personal life that drives your interest and that makes you even more passionate about what you do and i will talk to you about that in a moment but i want to go back again because you were saying that and i i'm from colombia so i understand the different cultures inside the same country <laughs> because we have different climates and that creates a whole different way of living. And you have a pretty, not extreme, but distinct combination. Monterey, a very warm place, very happy a kind of um, society. Bogota, a colder place, temperature-wise, which makes people a little more aloof, if you want to say that. Despite that, and despite all the other um, context that surrounded you in terms of your own personal identity what kind of activities did you do that really like enjoy you really enjoyed that kind of took you away from the pressures of trying to reconcile with the society that you were living in well in Monteria for me was like um, I remember a lot of time I spent alone in my room perhaps uh, uh, when I was a teenager, because when I was uh, 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 younger, like a child, I used to love playing with dolls. Okay. And they, and I have a big, a, a little sister. So we play together and um, I, I really enjoy playing with her, with her Barbies and with the dolls in general. But in Monteria in the eighties was a big no-no for uh, a young boy to play with dolls. So uh, when I started to to conceal myself, I remember spending a lot of time alone in my room, uh, singing, like listening a lot of music, uh, a lot of uh, um, uh, English music because in the radio they didn't played that much uh, uh, music in English. Most of the music were in Spanish, like Vallenato uh, or uh, Salsa or Merengue. But uh, I mean, if you want to hear the Britney Spears or uh, uh, Mariah Carey or I don't remember what else, you had to buy the CD, yeah, the CD at that time. And played yourself in your in your uh, in your room. So I remember a lot of um, happy moments were be singing and listening to music alone in in my room. Right. Okay. And that was your teenager years. Yes. When you transitioned to university, like 
were your parents in, in, in the medical field or how did you get interested in becoming a, a physician? I was interesting, interested in, in psychology. Oh. So in, in Colombia, you have to decide at a very young age your career. It, we doesn't have the college and you have to decide very early what you're going to be. <laughs> and uh, that's a mistake, but that's how it works. So at the, at the beginning, I was interested in psychology because I, I, I've always been interested in human behavior okay. and how people think. And if you see, I was drawn to medical education kind of, of same uh, reasons. Um, but um, psychology wasn't uh, a very good choice in the eyes of my parents. Oh. So they uh, uh, suggest that I perhaps could become a, a, a doctor and then I could do psychiatry. Uh, that 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 would be like a more uh, promising future for mm -hmm. me instead of doing psychology, and I really like biology and the human body, and I was like, yeah, for sure. But at at sixteen years old, you don't have any clue how your life is going to be like twenty years after that. Um, so I started medicine thinking I was to become a, a psychiatrist. Mm, but then I did my clinical rotations in psychiatry and I discovered I hated like <laughs> a lot. I didn't, I didn't feel comfortable. Um, and it's funny because uh, anesthesia war was my last clinical rotation. Oh. And it was like a spark to me. And I, I, I still remember the first time I intubated a patient. I felt a good amount of joy and like exaltation. It was like, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's how I, I entered medical education, like, uh, uh, sorry, like uh, doctor uh, uh, training and then anesthesia training. Yeah. Okay. Two things about that, because for, for people who might not understand the context, yeah, in Colombia, you finish high school at 16, and you're supposed to choose your career at 16, which is yes. like, you were lucky in the sense that you stay in medicine. Many people change because it's, they don't yes. know. Yeah. So yes. good to use just for, for people to know that. So when you were, you did your anesthesia training, and then... Mm -hmm you were going also through this personal kind of reconciliation of who you were and then working with residents mm. who prompt you mm. to understand that you really want to focus on the supervisory relationship. Mm. What prompted you to do a PhD? Like why doing research as opposed to something else? Mm. So I've, I've always been interested in research. Okay. But... Uh, Doing my uh, medicine training, well, the research they know it's post-positivist quantitative uh, uh, type yeah. of research, right? So I worked six months in the uh, clinical epidemiology department at Javeriana University as a research assistant. Uh, because in early 2000, evidence-based medicine were like the big thing. 
And, and I was really drawn to that. And I was really interested in doing research on anesthesia or, or in medicine in general. Um, but that experience didn't work that well uh, for me. My teachers were not that inviting into the community. I didn't, I, I wasn't able to engage in a, any meaningful research. I didn't publish anything. Um, so I kind of paddled back and say, okay, uh, perhaps it's time for me to focus on my uh, uh, medicine career. And then I can sort out if I'm I want to become a researcher in, in the future. So for now, I want to do anesthesia. Yeah. And I was focused on that. Research here in postgraduate student is not uh, a big part of the curriculum. Mm -hmm. So I, I didn't do any research. So I'll just uh, a little bit <laughs> research during my anesthesia training. But then uh, I graduate and it happens that my Javeriana University were changing their curriculum to a competency-based, more modern curriculum. And they didn't have people trained in medical education. They had people training in education in general, and that was causing problems with uh, the process of implementation. And I wasn't I was sure I didn't want to pursue any further career in anesthesia, like to do a fellowship or a, a specialized training. Mm, and I said, okay, perhaps that's what I should do. Nobody has that training in medical education. That would give me an advantage within my department and within my university because it would be a unique person within my batch. And I was important to... Uh, consolidate my role in my department. Mm -hmm. So I did MHPE, and that's where I started to learn about clinical supervision and workplace learning. I was lucky enough to have uh, as my thesis supervisor, uh, uh, Renesta Mayer. Mm -hmm. She drove me to the dark side of the qualitative research realm. <laughs> she introduced me to qualitative research. And, and I was like, kind of the same uh, feeling I have intubating patients. It was like, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. This is very exciting to me. Yeah. I, I love to talk to people, to understand people, to understand their motives, uh, to hear their experiences and qualitative methods for right under my alley um, and then I say okay if if I'm serious enough to being a researcher I should do a PhD and you know Maastricht University had that path that you can continue through the PhD uh, quite easily and um, from the very first uh, encounters I had with Rene I told her my mindset was to do the PhD and we started to work on that path uh, mm -hmm. uh, 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 beginning in the MHP. So that's that's how I kind of entered the, the PhD uh, program. Yeah, great. Do you mind if we go back to the idea of identities that you were going through? I, I want to mm -hmm. ask you something more personal and then link it to what you shared with me before the interview. So you were 
in the 80s and 90s when you were struggling with coming out and, and trying to share this with people, how did your family play a role in help you? Like, did you have challenges with them or they were receptive to it? And then how that influenced your, your life from there? Well, uh, I mean, they they did what they knew they could do. So they have uh, a lot of fears. Perhaps they sense this femininity in me because I like to play with dolls and uh, um, I like to sing, to dance. I was really flamboyant and I was very extroverted as a, as a child. Perhaps they out of fear trying to to conceal that, to so they didn't allow me to play with dolls. Uh, they advised me not to be that flamboyant, um, and but it, it's not to blame them on that process. But I I understand it was uh, part of the culture we were living in, right? So um, when I saw it wasn't okay to show my femininity, and, and my parents didn't advise me to to, to uh, show that, um, I start to conceal it, the, mm. that, that, that part of me. And, um, uh, I, I moved to Bogota and it's funny because Monteria is the warm, happy place, but it's the one that's very conservative. Bogota, it's a little more progressive in that sense. It's the cold one, but it's more progressive. Um, so being away of that culture gave me the opportunity to start to uh, uh, explore my uh, sexual orientation. And I ended um, uh, uh, having boyfriends when I was studying in medicine here in Bogota because I, I, I didn't feel like observe or watch. But it was really easy to... Uh, not be at display. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was in the closet, but I was able to explore my sexual orientation here in Bogota more freely without my parents know or, or, or knowing my family in, in general didn't know. Mm, and I decided to um, uh, came out of the closet when I was finishing my medicine uh, training and perhaps in, in the anesthesia. But it was kind of, I, I, I had the same mindset. So I'm coming out of the closet, but I will remain this serious man and scene yeah. uh, person. So people will say, okay, Francisco is gay, but he's very masculine, but he it doesn't show. Mm -hmm. uh, he's not that feminine. He's not a flamboyant. Or I, I also use my academic record mm -hmm. as a shield. So Francisco is gay, but he's very accomplished, or he's very good at what he does. Um, and that was kind of a mistake because I was in the same wrong mindset of hiding my femininity. Um, but that's what you do. So coming out that way perhaps is also easy for other persons, for example, my parents. Uh, 
say, okay, he's he's gay, but he's very serious and he has complete all his training and he has an amazing job. And um, uh, they met my my uh, now husband and they were really happy with him and very at ease with him. So, um, yeah, it, it is wrong to hide your femininity, but coming out on that mindset uh, help all the people deal with your sexual okay. orientation. Right? Okay. So you managed to kind of reconcile that in that process. Before yes, yes. we started the interview, you also told me that you're now going or coming out from another identity kind of process. And it was mm -hmm. the identity of a researcher. So you finished your PhD, you mm -hmm. kind of now is full-time Columbia working as mm -hmm. a scientist or a researcher and mm -hmm. professor there. What was the struggle in there and how are you dealing with that? So um I regard my PhD years are the happiest years of my academic career because I had an amazing PhD team. I had protected time to do research. I had money to do research. I was very happy learning about uh, uh, qualitative methods. And when I finished the PhD, all that kind of suddenly disappeared. Mm. And... Um, mm, I, I hadn't, I didn't have a established role within my department. So I started to um, do some managerial work. So I started to coordinate uh, the internship in anesthesia and then the postgraduate uh, program in anesthesia. And, and those things can be very burdensome uh, so that uh, uh, it was a combination of things. So I had these new tasks and I didn't have that much support to do research. So I ended up leaning more on the managerial role uh, to consolidate and to give back to the university what they, they gave me because they paid for my PhD. Mm -hmm. um, and that put the, the research thing on hold. We were also creating a MHP program Mm -hmm. uh, and that takes a lot of time just to implement, to to design, then to implement, to 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 work on that. Um, and then we had the the pandemic, and the pandemic was a really really tough struggle for me because I I have uh, of obstructive sleep apnea. Oh. And I have hypertension, so I was on the high-risk uh, population. Mm -hmm. um, fortunately, uh, San Ignacio Hospital sent me to my home with payment, mm -hmm. so I could uh, be uh, at my place safe uh, uh, while there juggle how to work with this high-risk person that were working at the hospital and I was really lucky um, in that in that time and I spent three months at home and you, you perhaps say okay it's a perfect opportunity to do research hmm. or to uh, or, or to take all those projects that are sleeping in your back drawer and, and, and work on them but it was a phase of 
continual anxiety. And I wasn't sure if I, I was uh, able to come back to do anesthesia again, yeah. or if uh, the hospital were uh, was going to fire me because it wasn't uh, uh, good to have someone at home with full payment. Um, but I, I couldn't do research and I didn't have the, the, the team to do research. It was a very, very bad time in my life. So um, heading out of the pandemic, I, I decided to went back to my research identity and I mentioned uh, Renee an idea about a reflexivity guide I wanted to do. And we were supervising uh, a student in MHP doing uh, her thesis. And I was like, I would like her to, to understand the concept of reflexivity, but we don't have like a didactic material she can draw on. Should we, should we write an Amy guide on reflexivity? And she was like, for sure. Uh, and uh, she suggested to invite Lara Varpu to the project. And then Lara Varpu suggested to, to ask uh, Renate Kalk. Yeah. And um, that was my, my reconciliation with research. It was like a mm -hmm. dream team again. Uh, we were working on something that's quite interesting for all of us. Uh, that's quite relevant to our field. Um, I felt validated as a researcher um, for someone like this big fishes in medical education to tell you that your ideas are very good on the way you're thinking, it's very good, or uh, the quality of your work is really good, it's really validating. And perhaps that's what I was needed to spark that research identity again. So right now I'm... Um, uh, we're working on an MHP program, and I had students doing uh, their thesis, and uh, all of them are doing uh, uh, proge projects with uh, qualitative methods or methodology. Mm -hmm. um, so right now, that's my path to keep research going. Doing, I'm not doing that much uh, personal research. Uh, because I have my job as director of the MH program, but I'm only into the research years. I'm not that. Uh, I'm not teaching the 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 like the core courses, but the research ones, and that's how I've been uh, more uh, in the field of research on, on medical education. That's such a great story. And I was going to ask you about that paper because I think I have read five papers in the last week or so, and all of them have cited the reflexivity paper. So it's becoming extremely highly cited. Yes. So congratulations yes. to you. This is a great story to have. So I want to pick your brain. So you have those, Umbia, I call it the global south to incorporate mm. all the countries mm. down there. The fact that you lost everything you had during your beautiful years, do you think it's a pervasive challenge to do this kind of work or to be a researcher in general in the global south? And how do you reflect about helping countries to, to not let people off the hook or not off the hook, but uh, let the people kind of alone after they finish their training? 
That's a big question. <laughs> it's it's difficult to be a researcher. Purely a purely researcher, it's difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, for many reasons. So we don't have the culture of research. Yeah. For example. And that has a lot of drawbacks. For example, we don't have uh, grants. Mm. So there's not a lot of money into yeah. research. Um, most of the money came from universities, mm-hmm. uh, not for independent uh, agencies, n- not from uh, the government. Mm. So doing research is difficult and uh, being a researcher by itself, it's not easy to do because the payment is not good enough. It's not good. So, for example, I I combine, I, I work half time as an anesthesiologist and half time as as a, a professor, and 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 and. I, that I, I love being an anesthesiologist, but part of the reason that I have that arrangement is because that's the way I can earn a really good amount of money. Uh, I wouldn't be able to do that solely as a professor. So combining the two things that I, I happily enjoy doing um, allow me to have a living standard that that's uh, 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 what I, I wanted. Like in terms of my my incomes, right? Um, but it's difficult, and for people that has a PhD solely, it's hard to find a place to work in Colombia. Mm-hmm. Sounds funny, but that that's how things work here, and uh, the payments are not that that good. And um, yeah, and it, I mean. Um, one of the things that that's problematic is that this figure of a professor that only do research it's hard to grasp for universities universities need someone that also had teaching tasks managerial tasks um, and then perhaps research tasks um university has a uh, newly intent to uh, 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 spike the research uh, uh, outcomes of the uh, of the several departments they have, and they put in a lot of uh, efforts on supporting their teachings in uh, teachers in doing research. Um, but it's a culture that's difficult to change from one day to the other it's something that would take time because you also need like a governmental support to do research to 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 consider that relevant for the university right now the universities are focused on keeping the students enrolled and and having teachers that do that teaching and do the managerial roles Hmm. Are you hopeful that the generation that you are training now with the MHP will become those leaders that we kind of change culture after? You see some for of those people. Sure, yeah. For sure, for oh, sure. That's, that's what I. That's what I. I. I gather. It's like um, perhaps I should 
focus my intents, not in doing research myself, but to create a community of researchers that are also interested in qualitative research. So I can have like more support, more people that are interested in that. Uh, and that could be uh, uh, like expanding members of that community. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why my role is focused right now. Mm -hmm. uh, that's what I'm, I'm intended to do during the, the, the MHPE program. That's so awesome. I'm so happy to hear that because I really want to <laughs> see that change. And part of the reason I moved away was exactly mm -hmm. that challenge because I don't have a physician. <laughs> Uh, degree, so it's really hard. Anyway, so I want to transition. We have a few minutes left to what I call the small things in life, and and I, I'm hoping to pick your brain on a few simple things, like mm -hmm. you and your husband. What do you do together that makes you laugh and makes you just forget about any issues in life? What what is that activity that you enjoy? We watch a lot of television. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because well television has elevated a lot lately so it's not the television we watch in the 90s it was poor quality so now television is high quality entertainment and um we really enjoy watching a very good series so um that's what makes us laugh and that was makes us uh, cry. <laughs> uh, it, it's it's an activity we really enjoy. We really also enjoy uh, uh, going uh, for dinner. Oh yeah. So Bogota is really good in terms of gastronomical uh, places. You can find food from everywhere in the world, high quality food. Um, and that's something I really enjoyed of living in Bogota. One of the few things. Yeah, that, yeah, I would agree with that. <laughs> so when you want to celebrate success, let's say the publication of your reflexivity paper that is taking off, how mm -hmm. do you as a Colombian celebrate mm -hmm. success different from other people? What, what do you do? Different? Yeah. No, I think it's the same, but it's let's go out for dinner. <laughs> let's <laughs> let's have uh, some cocktails and some nice food and let's go to that restaurant that's perhaps overpriced but this is the the, the moment to celebrate um but it's through food so food is okay. very important in the colombian culture and mm -hmm. uh, you know that it's it's the way we gather we are family it's the way we celebrate things. Um, oh, of course, there's a lot of alcohol involved. But um, yeah, I don't feel that's very unique. I, I think okay. that's a global thing. But that's how we, we, we celebrate. Yes. Okay. I will add to that music. <laughs> yeah. We eat yeah. and we yeah. listen to music and dance. I'm always curious also about people's ideas on what they will do if they hadn't become who they are. So if you hadn't become an anesthesiologist, a physician, a researcher, neither of those three identities, 
what do you think we have you would have chosen as your career path now reflecting now madre mia that's a difficult one because <laughs> i it's very difficult because talking about reflexivity uh, my choices in life uh, for example doing research has helped me change my identity and has helped me understand who I am, has helped me put down that hyper-masculinity shield. Um, and that's all about reflexivity. It's yeah. how you influence your research, but also how the research influences you. So mm -hmm. seeing myself on my results and seeing myself as a problem with my students help me realize, okay, I don't want to be that person. I want to be this other person and I want to change that. Um, and I, 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 I really, I am enjoying the person I'm becoming mm -hmm. because of my decisions in terms of becoming a researcher in qualitative research and becoming a, a clinical teacher. But if I don't have any of that, Let's see if I, I I was lucky enough to grow up in a more welcoming context on my femininity. I'm pretty sure I will be I would have become perhaps a singer or uh, an actor. I really love acting. I I I I have the feeling I I did it. I could be a good actor if I were to have like all the opportunities to cultivate that growing up. I didn't have that in Monteria or in, in, in Colombia. Um, that's why perhaps I enjoy so much watching television yeah. or going to movies because it's like, I would love to do that. Like to, to be an actor and to convey all these feelings to the people, I would love to do that. So in another multiverse, <laughs> I'm pretty sure I grew up perhaps in Canada and I was really welcoming and I joined like a theater club and I end up becoming a good actor. That, that could be that. Could be that. <laughs> I, at least it wouldn't be like a constant struggle between my right. sexual orientation. And if I could put all that aside, perhaps that could be. The answer. Cool. So that takes me to my last question. If you had the chance to shadow or be the assistant of one actor you admire, who that will be? Madre mía. <laughs> I would say I would love to be a, a, in any project with. I would say uh, Olivia Coleman. Olivia oh. Coleman, like, yes, I I adore her. I think, well, no, let's 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 sure. let's bring that back. Let's change. So it would be either Olivia Coleman or okay. Tilda Swinton. I watch everything Tilda Swinton do. I think they found she found a way to be unique mm -hmm. and to select projects that allowed her to be unique, and it's like. For sure. Tilda Swinton would be my first choice without, yes. I don't know why I stumbled. Yeah. Oh, good. 
you, you got the choice. <laughs> Great. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Francisco. That was really enjoyable. I appreciate you sharing all everything from your personal to your professional. I think it will be very enriching for our listeners. So thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much to you. Okay. And thank you to our listeners. And we'll see you in the next episode. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Saira Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.